Hey guys, just a quick announcement before we start. We are doing an ad swap with some friends of ours this month over at the B-Sides podcast. Yes, they are our buds. They're also former guests on And Introducing, um, and they're pretty great. So you're going to be hearing a little about them this month, and their show is going to be hearing a little about us. So here we go. How do we define pop music? Are we all chained to the rhythm? What do we expect from our artists in an era that needs all progressive hands on deck? Why does every Carly Rae Jepsen album feel like a moral necessity? What can Britney Spears' career trajectory tell us about pressure and patriarchy? Will Rihanna ever release new music and pull us through the careening emergency that is American politics once and for all? Let's talk. The B-Sides is a podcast and internet home for progressives who love pop. Subscribe today wherever you listen to get bi-weekly musings from hosts Becky, Hannah, and Mimi on Pop's place in our world and the music you should put in your ears to fuel your reckoning with the trash fires all around us. Listen to the B-Sides on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find podcasts today. Welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And this is We Podicano, an Our Band Could Be Your Life miniseries. We are taking a journey through Michael Azarad's chronicle of the 1980s American underground rock scene, continuing today with Chapter 6, The Replacements. Founded in Minneapolis in 1979 by teenage reprobates Paul Westerberg, Chris Mars, Bob Stinson, and Tommy Stinson, the band would quickly develop from more or less something to do while drinking in the basement to a powerhouse of heartfelt songwriting in the burgeoning hardcore punk scene. Through a career marked by notoriously sloppy and raucous live shows, the band released a string of instantly classic albums and then made the jump to major labels in 1985. And today we'll be talking all things replacements from Take Out the Trash to Tim through Chapter 6 of Our Band Could Be Your Life. But first, let's introduce our guest, collecting his three-timers club challenge coin from Chapo Trap House, Time for My Stories, and he is the proud new foster parent of a beautiful gibbon. It's Felix Biederman. Thank you for having me. Actually, I adopted three gibbons. Oh, oh hell shit. Yeah. yeah, no. It was like cheaper to adopt a gibbon than I thought. So <laughs> you went in for the package deal, right? Yeah, no, it, it's um, like... You know, you'd read one and it would be like, you know, this one was uh, like orphaned or this one like didn't develop right. But like now she's living in the habitat and she's fine. And it's like, I can't really say no to that one. So really just like all the ones that immediately showed up, I just clicked adopt on all of them. Oh, man. That's well, wonderful. I'm sure that they are very thankful to have your support. And someday hopefully you'll get to see them. Well, I, I was thinking that... Um, I want to go to the, uh, I don't know what the deal is with like going to the IPPL, the International Primate Protection League. I think I would have to give them, it might be one of those places where I have to give them like $10 million to <laughs> meet the Gibbons. But um, at the Bronx Zoo, there's, have you seen this video of the Lar Gibbon who's like grooming the taper? Yes. You, I, you saw that to the, sent that to the chat earlier. Yeah. It's they very beautiful. both live there at the Bronx Zoo. So, I mean, we could do yeah. that in the meantime before I, 
<laughs> before you yeah, buy the animal yeah, for the primate protection league. Giving them $10 million. I'm also like, there's also this, another thing that is in a zoo, it's just like a conservation society, which like most zoos are a part of, right? Mm-hmm. But they just, you know, the Duke Lemur Center. But like for all of those, you really have to give, I, I think that's probably what it is, right? Yeah. Like when, mm. whenever like a rich guy, like a, there are a bunch of hedge fund guys who are into like, elephant conservation and like some ape and monkey and the third category that lemurs are that i can't pronounce uh <laughs> that's just like yeah well what can i get for like 300 million dollars oh i can like meet the gibbon i can hang out with him mm-hmm. yes uh well to move on from from primate talk into uh a different kind of primate man uh and his creative <laughs> pursuits how's nice, that for how's that nice for a sweaty segue. transition yeah, yeah yeah no that's that's good <laughs> so uh, Felix, I knew that from your time in Minneapolis and also in general uh, that you were a replacements fan. And I, I don't want to blow, blow up another one of our coworker spots too much, uh, Amber, but I feel like in a recent chat or something, uh, Amber kind of uh, brushed off your music taste as being like predominantly hip hop, which I, you know, the other two times that you've been on the show, that's what we were talking about. But, you know, uh, if anybody follows you on Instagram, you know that whenever you're at the gym, you're mostly listening to like sad alt rock from the 80s. It's like a lot of uh, Smiths and uh, particularly you've requested Swing and Party to be on more, at least one chapter episode. So when we were lining this up, I was like, Felix should probably be on to talk about the replacements. Felix, what is your fandom with the replacements? I actually like didn't even really know they existed when I lived in the <laughs> Twin Cities. Um, my first like, because yeah, I did like mostly... The only things I listened to when I lived there were like rap, like all the rap I'd ever listened to and uh, have a nice life. Mm-hmm. And there was this, um, there were like two Sun Kill Moon songs I thought were cool, <laughs> but yes. I was mo- mostly listening to rap. Um, this is also when I would listen to like, like four hours of the Joe Rogan podcast over like a couple days. And <laughs> like microdosing it? Yeah. Well, I would do like 45 minutes at a time. Okay. That's that's a dose. It took up a lot of time. Like that this is back when Rogan would have on like uh it would just be a guy who's like not credentialed in anything, but it's just like some British guy that Joe Rogan knows who's like Yeah, actually I think that Babylonians had spaceships and Joe Rogan <laughs> will be like, That's amazing. That was the best era of that show. But yeah, so I, I didn't really listen to them. I I sort of became acquainted with them through uh one of the only good scenes in the second season of True Detective mm. when uh, Colin Farrell is doing coke alone and shadow <laughs> yeah. boxing while listening to their placements. And I was like, oh, this band sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and then I, I, I think I like ended up fully checking them out like due to, I think, like the Spotify or YouTube algorithm, which, you know, Spotify is obviously evil, but primarily for the reason that they've probably paid us like under a four-figure amount the entire time we've been there. That's the main bad thing they do, just to us. Everything else is fine. I'm, I'm, uh, I've never heard from Spotify at all, and we are, they host every single episode of ours. It, 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 is, it feels criminal to me. Yeah, but their algorithm is really good yeah. like for figuring out what you might like. And I was listening to like the Smiths and Pulp and shit, and they came out, and I was like, oh, this is great. And yeah, no, I've, since then, I've loved them. Molly, do you have a background beyond I our do, band? I do. Yes. So you're so, so condescending with your oh, well, do so, you know them? So far when we've done this for every band, the Molly's answer has been I read about them and I our band could be your life. It's true. 
But no, I actually had a prior, again, book relationship with this band because the first time I think I ever read about them was in Chuck Klosterman's seminal road trip boy memoir, Killing Yourself to Live, 85% of a True Story, where he goes around the, went around the country uh, to visit the death sites of various uh, rock stars, American rock stars. And he went to uh, Minneapolis. I think that's where... Um, uh, Bob Stinson, uh, spoiler alert, died of a uh, 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 basically, I think, alcohol poisoning or just like general an, an yeah. alcoholic death of some sort. It's just um, the death of alcohol attrition, pretty much. Which, uh, yeah, the so that's where I first heard about the replacements and listened to them a bit then, and I was like, this is good, and uh, I, I I like them a lot. Yeah, for me, it was one of the things that I like lamely sensed was hip and then just forced myself to like in pursuit of being hip. But let it be when you like read about like, oh, yeah, this is like one of these seminal hip albums of all time. And then you put it on. It is just instantly undeniable. Every song on that album is gold. And they mm-hmm. it has that weird feeling of, of being from a unique voice who is in their own way an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, has not come up in like a traditional way in the mu- music industry or a traditional way in in terms of fame or or songwriting or musicianship, and and it's just so unique that uh, it, it it's pretty much. I feel like it's kind of impossible to not just be immediately enchanted by that, and then all their other attendant work is also great. I agree. Yeah. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into the story of the replacements. Let's get into it. Um, I mean, the at the top of the chapter, Azarad basically notes that unlike the prior bands mentioned, the replacements are not political. They're not DIY. They did not start their own label. They did not book their own shows. They did not drive their own van. Uh, but they're they made a uh, you know t- tuneful indie rock that uh, they were underground, but mainstream people liked them. And so I feel like they were one of the first like real crossover artists in a sense. And also girls went to their shows, <laughs> which is notable because it seems like you could basically get your your whole ass killed if you went to a minor threat, et cetera, show. And I don't think that would necessarily happen at the replacements. I think that's like why I like I hadn't really read anything about them for like a year of listening to them. But I think that's like kind of why I thought they were cool is I, I've like never really thought any punk shit is really cool. Yeah. At all. Like it just I mean, from one uh, you know, bored former upper middle class kid, now upper middle class adult, uh to a previous generations, it's like, yeah, I know what I'm saying here. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. I, I mean like I, I I can't say that it's like objectively bad, just that I I like don't give a shit really. Yeah. Um and I just like I've never I've always failed to see how punk in America is like some sort of political movement because it's like, okay, what did it accomplish? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what happened? And yeah, I I guess it's not fair because it was like co opted very quickly and very long before I was even born. But I liked I liked them the replacements because like there wasn't like that try hardness in punk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were just like they were. I mean, I guess like there's like more authentic punk, but like with shit like the Sex Pistols or something like things that people will generally recognize that they don't know a lot about punk. It's like, all right, you're like trying to cultivate an image like you're fucking up a lot. But this is all like a very conscious marketing choice. And even even other things, it's like, okay, well, you know, this is like a niche product and you're trying to market in a niche way. But they like. They legitimately wanted to succeed, but also like 
would legitimately always fuck up. Yes. And like, like they did not know how to hold the two feelings in their heart at the same time. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we'll get into that as we go through their story, and that's what's legitimate. What's so interesting about them? I was talking, and see now that we we're all out of order recording, I forget which one. That that's what's so interesting about this book to me is that each of these bands has like a kind of built-in inherent tragedy to them. Yeah, and a very and for some of them it's more explicit, like the abrupt death of Dee Bloon. But for like the replacements, it is yeah what Felix was just out- outlining their inherent greatness and their kind of desire to make it coupled with just being actual fuck ups to a level that they could not, they were from their very beginning, kind of what made them great. Their, their down to earth fuck up, fucked up in this made it yeah. impossible for them to succeed. I, it, there, so there was this guy I knew when I lived in uh, Minnesota who is like, I don't want to say too much because like he's not famous, but like people are psycho enough to try to figure out who someone is. But mm-hmm. Like he was, he was well off, definitely well off. And he, he, what, like he definitely grew up rich, but wasn't, he wasn't like an asshole. Like he wasn't, he didn't think he was like really better than anyone for that reason or anything, but he was just like kind of a psycho. Not in a way that was like really harmful to other people, but like he was the only person I I ever knew who ever like injected Coke into his veins. Braze being the other. So it's like, (laughs) you know, that's what type of person does that. Mm -hmm. But he like, he participated in a lot of combat sports and he would always like stream together uh, some months sober and then some like just totally go off the fucking rails and through it all, like a very smart guy who I always really like talking to. But after a few years of knowing him, I just got the sense it's like, no, this is like probably just what this guy's going to do. And I don't I don't feel like we, at least in America, have really scratched the surface of addiction science. I feel like a lot of it that we think is uh, is should be commonly accepted is just bullshit or has like a pathetically Mm -hmm. low success rate if you actually look at it. And it definitely doesn't scratch the surface with a guy like that because it's like, okay, well, why is he like that? Mm-hmm. Like, why? It's not even like the drugs at some point. It just like he likes the act of throwing it away. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's who they reminded me. They didn't grow up rich like this guy, but that they are that type of person where it's like a very smart, like exceptionally capable person who loves destroying their own life than doing it again for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The, I mean, the, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it, but just the idea of self sabotage seems to be their whole thing. Uh, and I don't know the, like they are, they are that good, but I mean, like for example, you know, the other people, other bands in this book, they set this, the bar for themselves at a certain level, by saying like, okay, we're just going to be so abrasive that we're only going to get this popular. And then mm-hmm. after that point, like the, the quality of the music is going to be such that we're never going to break into a certain level of an audience. But like these guys could have, I think probably gotten like huge, maybe. Absolutely. I mean, listening to yeah. let it be, it's like, that is good pop music to me. Good ro- pop rock music. But yeah, the self-sabotage just, that's what took them out instead of limiting themselves sonically. Uh, there are so many stories like that through the chapter. We, uh, we should uh, get into get further in. Yeah, so let's we'll do the their their backgrounds. Paul Westerberg, son of a Minneapolis Cadillac salesman, 
I remember, you know, a few episodes back, I think Mike Watt was the son of a, a Buick stereo installation guy. So we're just go, going car to car. Well, that, uh, that is what's interesting about these types of guys, because like they don't you won't ever get anyone like this in music ever again. No, they're going to no. be someone who's like, like grew up poor or whatever. And it's like psychotically talented from the moment you see them. Like you don't mm-hmm. really have to develop their talents that much. It's like instantly ap- apparent like a one in 100 million type person. Yeah. Or far more likely and far more emblematic of most other musicians, it's like someone who comes from, comes from a rich background who has a lot of time and money to try this. Or even more likely now, what we're seeing a lot of now, like people are just like made by the industry. Yeah. yeah. And like all these, I think it's very interesting that so many of these guys came from like Sort of like not amazing paying, but like middle class jobs you could have in America and like raise a family on. And it's not mm-hmm. like everything was perfect, obviously, but like, you know, they still had everything that was fucked up about them. But they, it's like, yeah, your dad could work installing radios on Buicks and you could be a musician. Yes. The the most elite parents, I feel like, in this book are um, either like in the political world or like professors. Yeah. Yeah. It's so nuts. Yeah. So Paul Westerberg, Cadillac salesman's son. Uh, he basically says he has a like just kind of fucked up adolescence where he's kind of constantly checking out of reality. But he learns to play guitar at the age of 14, uh, wants to form a, a band as soon as he graduates from high school. Uh, his jobs after he graduates from high school include working at a steel mill and working as a janitor for Senator David Durenberger uh, to the point where he when he's playing with his first band, he wrote set lists on the senator's stationery. Um, I, I just thought that was great. Yes. Shout out Minnesota Senator Durenberger. Yeah, One thanks of the, for the senators stationary. forgotten by history. Yes. <laughs> I had to look up. I wanted to know if there was any like good trivia about this guy. If, yeah, is there if, any marquee uh, legislation from this uh, guy? I will say that the, only, the most notable thing about him is that he split from the Republican Party in the early 2000s and endorsed both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. He, uh, w- he was censured by the Senate in 1990. I mean, like, do you know, like... There was a whole like crackdown on ethics shit in the early nineties that ensnared mm-hmm. Jim Wright, who is he was the last Democratic House Speaker from his time until I think like Pelosi in 06, if I remember. Like right. a whole generation of those he, guys. Yeah. Um but yeah, they got Durenberger on like using state funds or office funds to pay for a condo in <laughs> Yeah, for, he used a hundred K in nineteen ninety to pay for a condo, which is like now like it's like you didn't think anyone would know like there's so many ways to be corrupt as a senator that are totally legal and Mm -hmm. he's just yeah he was just one of those awesome guys like that the senate censured him 96 to (laughs) 0 must have like really pissed people off i'm also just imagining how nice a hundred thousand dollar condo in minneapolis in 1990 it was probably an entire floor of a building yeah 1990 like (laughs) yeah no before anyone like cared about any type of climate thing and like there were like yeah no that you could have bought like half the fucking building for 100k in 96 in 90 he was oh he was select committee on intelligence <laughs> so this is like an inner nwo thing he was kicked out of the nwo for uh buying buying the condo 
<laughs> well, I would uh, pay top dollar for one of those, uh, if any of those early replacement set lists written on his uh, stationary existed. Yeah, sure. It's probably like on one side, the plans for 9-11, and then <laughs> here comes a regular. <laughs> it's like, which one's worth more? I don't know. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's that's where uh, uh, Westerberg is at. Meanwhile, we have Bob and Tommy Stinson. They're half brothers. They're eight years apart. At the age of eleven, uh, Tommy receives a bass guitar from Bob, uh, basically to keep him out of trouble. And they would jam together. They eventually started a band called Dog Breath with yeah. uh, uh, Paul Westerberg's acquaintance, Chris Mars. Amazing name, Chris. Have you thought about changing your name to Chris Mars? Uh, that's a great name. Uh, up there with uh, Chris Funk from uh, the Decemberists uh, for great rock Chris names. There's a guy in the Decemberists whose name is Chris Funk? Yes. All right. Are you sure it's not Funke? Uh, no, it has no E. Okay. There, um, was, uh, <laughs> there was also Mick Mars in uh, uh, Motley Crue. Um, oh yes, Mars, Mars is a very in good. General. Yeah, yeah, it's a powerful rock name, I would say. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Chris Mars on the drums in Dog Breath, which I we should keep track of a list, but I feel like that's definitely one of the worst worst band names I've ever heard. Um, I, it's perfect for Bob Stinson though, because he is definitely the like most don't give a fuck members of the band. I mean, listen, if you buy a ticket to go see a band called Dog Breath, like you know what you're gonna yeah. get, like yeah. quality wise. Um, so Westerberg used to hide in the bushes to listen to Dog Breath Jam, and then he eventually uh, met everyone, got a chance to join, uh, and sort of took over as a lead singer role after they fired the uh, quote-unquote hippie who they had gotten to <laughs> sing with them before. Didn't, didn't Westerberg kind of like covertly go behind the rest of the band and go up to that guy and be like, hey, get, hey man. The rest of the band, they don't like you. Yeah, he did some like survivor like sabotage. <laughs> he definitely the, like yeah, he did he did hiding, a classic betrayal. The hiding behind in the bushes to listen to the band jam in the basement is such like a beautiful, like suburb classic suburban image. It's, it's it feels very Pete and Pete. Yeah, it's so analog. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, the 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 band is formed. They changed their name from Dog Breath to the replacements, which is I would say one of the better band names of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, you know, Paul Westerberg was, uh, quote, disciplined and focused versus the Stinsons were volatile and raucous. <laughs> so that's the dynamic that's at play here. It's, it's also important to keep in mind this entire time. I just have to keep reminding myself that Tommy Stinson is like 12, 13, 14. Yeah. He's the entire time this band exists. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, when Wardell was doing comedy when he was like <laughs> 14. Yeah. Wait, Chris, who or are we talking Mullen about? Too, for that matter. Yeah. Which band um, that we were talking about had God. to give the custody of um, the like the youngest guy over to the band or to the <laughs> label when they toured Cage the when Elephant? We, when we were doing the Indie Heads podcast, we came upon the pack that Cage the Elephant is a band. This band from Kentucky had a very similar situation that they like moved to the UK in the mid two thousands to like get a recording contract, and the parents of the bassist had to like sign guardianship over to like their UK manager to let their 14-year-old bassist like move to the UK to record the Cage the Elephant al albums which sounded highly sus to me. Sure. That that kind of thing would still be happening in like 2012. That's like that's a very far way to go for a band that like I for completely forgot about that. Yes, exactly. Just like one of those 2012 ass bands. Oh, yes. 100%. No, you I could still... you could have seen live and been like, "Wait, what? Oh, they are, that's a band." I don't <laughs> think I can sing like gun to head uh cage the elephant song even though and we, we did like a podcast listening about to them, them. yeah yeah no it's in in one ear at the other it's a sure. hell of a band to get child trafficked for 
Yeah. Okay, so the the replacements, they record a demo tape and they give it to this guy, Pete Jesperson. He is a Minneapolis uh, club DJ, FM radio DJ, record store manager, and label co-founder, the label uh, Twin Tone. So this guy is like, a, he's like the guy in Minneapolis. Um, and they give him the demo tape just to try to get a show at the club that Pete Jesperson DJs at. And instead he's like, okay, so uh, do you guys want to record like a single or like a full album? <laughs> like he basically gives them a deal and that's a surprise, you know, as we sp- uh, spoke about. Yes. Through, throughout all of this, Pete Jesperson very much ha- is like a Fargo ass character through this where he's just like this harried, uh, but, but Fargo, if one of the characters in Fargo was like a club promoter, Mm-hmm. Uh, because he he's just this, like this harried like do good guy who just wants to produce good albums and like take care of this band of wild drunken teenagers that he b- totally believes in, but in the end can like never do anything right. Did I call him Pete wrong? Is he Peter? Did I just type it no, wrong? It's, it's Pete. It's Jesperson. Pete. Okay. Yeah. Jesperson. Jesperson. Yeah. I mean that's got to be like pretty pretty like Minnesota like yeah, yeah, ass exactly. name, right? I don't know. Um, yeah, so he he basically said that as soon as he listened to their demo, it was it was uh, the, a magic moment of if, of his life. So he would be foolish not to pursue the replacements to their end. Uh, so then he gave him a deal, and he also started managing them. Uh, and then they recorded their first album, which was called "Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash," <laughs> which is just a great that's a great album title. Uh, and they, uh, as Azarad wrote, the songs took the adult stereotype of teenagers as lazy, maladjusted human beings and gleefully ran with it, nullifying the insult by celebrating it, unquote. And that's where I finished by saying, so they basically invented pop punk because that is basically what pop <laughs> yes. punk is yeah, based on as a theory. Yeah. Uh, let's listen to a little off this. Uh, here's Something to Do which is a nice little handshake from our Husker Du episode since this already on their first album is referencing seeing Husker Du around Minnesota. I appreciate of this stuff right out right out of the bat that they are like kind of taking to all those like punk impulses, especially maybe more like um, UK punk, like uh, um, who am I thinking of? Jump, jump boys. I'll get back to them. And, but it has like the legit good songwriting behind it already. Like those little flourishes over the bridge and everything. Mm-hmm. The undertones. Undertones. Yeah. Uh, Paul Westerberg's effect is just like this perfect threading between that like adolescent sneer and then also somehow sounding like mature beyond its age. Yeah. It's funny. They they kind of downplayed. They kind of made it seem like he just pushed his way into a lead singer role, but I really like his voice. He's got that great melodic grit that I very much enjoy. Uh, so that's something to do off take out the uh, sorry Ma didn't take out the trash. 
perfect idiotic. Yeah. Uh, more more people need to you know people need to stop naming their albums stuff like like nine or like cloud and just do more <laughs> shit like that. Yeah. More jokes. Well, everyone wants to be Trent Reznor. One hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Um, so they, yeah, they're, they're signed to twin tone. They're putting out an albums. They pretty much avoid, you know, as I said before, like versus, uh, you know, someone like a Greg Ginn is starting his own label and like going nuts, uh, trying to run a business as well as a a small business, as well as make music. The replacements are just music only. They kind of keep their heads out of the business side of things, perhaps to their eventual detriment. Um, and they also became known pretty quickly for playing very drunken and sloppy live shows. That was their hallmark. And as Azariah writes, against the backdrop of straight edge, getting wasted was once again a rebellious act. <laughs> it's so funny, the like cycle, like I don't know how long it was, because I guess, yeah, at the turn of the 80, uh, you know, the idea, oh, wow, every, all the popular guys are just like getting drunk on beer and fighting and like that's so boring and I want to go straight edge. And now it's like 1982 and it's cool to get drunk again, I guess. Yeah. I mean, their their whole relationship to partying and alcohol is I find very interesting and along the lines with uh, what Felix was saying earlier about addiction, because there's obviously some deep compulsion stuff going in it. But mm-hmm. it also kind of takes the, you know, to armchair analyze it, it takes the kind of form of it just seems like they feel like they're supposed to mm. do it like that. That is one of the ways to affect being a rock band. And it, but also at the same time, it just seems like they're kids having fun throughout it kind of, of it. reminds me of when we talk about guided by voices and how like uh bob pollard would just it wasn't it wasn't it was definitely compulsive but it was just the idea that like of course i'm going to the basement i'm playing music for four hours and i'm going to drink 20 beers <laughs> and like do some speed as well to keep me on track once i've had my 20 beers and so yeah it, i don't know i don't know yeah especially as we get in later when they are playing bigger gigs and they almost feel like it's their responsibility to fuck up the gig in some way. Yeah. They were, yeah, they were never going to get those right. Yeah. Um, So they uh, also the, you know, to know, I know we noted in a prior episode, but they've got a little bit of a rivalry going with Husker Du, which was the more practiced experienced band that did not get the twin tone local uh, uh, record deal, but they still took uh, the replacements under their wing, had them open for them at out of town shows they did their first East Coast tour in 1983. Tommy dropped out of 10th grade to go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was so young that they had to hide him away until they played at the clubs that they played at. And uh, this quote from Bob is made me sad. They said they wouldn't let him play the pinball machine or nothing. And, you know, he'd cry. <laughs> <laughs> Just poor Tommy. Like, yeah. he's still a child. But also, he's rocking out. It's very funny to imagine, like, having to argue with a doorman to, like, let a child into the club uh, because he's literally part of the band. Right. <laughs> I, I, I take it when you bounce, Felix, that you didn't ever bounce for, like, a music venue. I, I wondered if anybody ever used that on you. No, no, no. They're, they're playing tonight. They're DJing tonight. Yeah, no. I, I, like, probably accidentally let in a lot of people with fakes. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, like, I honestly... Most of us had no idea how to check them, but uh, <laughs> no, yeah, I, it wasn't a music venue, so I, I never had that one tried on me. Yeah. Well, now it's easy to to check IDs because now if you're born in the 1900s, you're you're okay to go in. Oh no, I just mean like a that's the meme a, a fake one. I was when I lived in Chicago, my friends got uh, 
e European Union motorcycle licenses. <laughs> Because it was like no dumbass bouncer would know like fuck? if that's real or not. And it like always worked. Holy shit. That's a good hack if anyone's listening to this it and was, they're underage. Yeah, it was just funny because it was just like, you know, Chicago's <laughs> 17-year-olds with like shitty facial hair who like looked like kids and being like, yeah, I'm a motorcycle owner in Europe. In, here. in Europe. And I have no accent. <laughs> It's like oh, yeah. it's so good. It's like so unbelievable, but it's just like yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's if you tell a lie big enough, that who's gonna deny it? It's it is such a specific thing that it'd be like, all right, I guess he has dual citizenship and is a motorcycle owner, even though he like clearly walked here. He walked like three <laughs> miles here. <laughs> I le- I left my motorcycle in uh in Austria. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm I'm tr- I'm still filling out the papers to get it sent over. Yeah. Uh, all right, so the next uh, replacements joint is a an EP called the Replacements Stink. It's their uh, sort of punk slash hardcore attempt. Uh, should we listen to something off of that? Yes, they kind Let's of flirt to- with hardcore and then they pretty much immediately abandon it, which seems fair enough. And also, just the title of this, same with the last one, it's just more of their you know instinctive feeling that they should undercut themselves at any point. The replacements stink. Uh, Here's Kids Don't Follow, which I would say does not stink. Mm. Oh, this also has a very funny intro. This is the Minneapolis police. The party is over. (laughs) If you all just grab your stuff and leave, there won't be any hassle. (laughs) The party's been closed. The party is over with. Grab your stuff and go, and then nobody goes to jail. You want no Like with this one, you can really feel like the the desire for songwriting like straining against the punk con- uh, mm-hmm. conventions of it. But also, just like I really like the guitar work in some of these harder songs. Uh, one of the anecdotes that I really appreciated about Bob Stinson's really idiosyncratic guitar playing is that he was very good at it, but he was like completely self-taught to the extent that, as a prank, uh, before a show, uh, one of the members like use a marker to draw the dots on his fretboard differently and then when he would look down to play solos he like couldn't figure out what was going on because there were like different dots (laughs) on the bridge of his guitar oh man The other anecdote about this is that uh, I guess they started putting this in their live rotation and uh, 
uh, Pete Jesperson heard it and was like, this has got to be a single. We've, we've got to do it. And so he went to his, the co-founders of Twin Tone and was like, I will do anything to get this out. I will hand stamp jackets if I have to. And so he was okayed uh, to you know, spend the money on recording it, but did take him up on his offer. And so Jesperson and virtually <laughs> everyone he knew had to hand stamp 10,000 white record jackets for the replacement Stinky EP. <laughs> so that's the DIY. Something tells me that the band members did not participate in this. Who knows? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's what the thing at the beginning is that like they never had to do any of the old their own bullshit for this, which is like one of the more charming things of this because everybody else in this book has to like endlessly grind to get like anything done. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, to to from renting the van to like putting out the albums and stuff. Um, well, yeah, that, I mean, isn't that like kind of the other side of being someone who fucks up all the time? You're consistently in the position where you can fuck up something huge. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's They're part of what like characterizes someone like that is that for one reason or another, be it like birth or talent, they can get there pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then that is that is the other thing of being like in the position of being these like hyper talented weirdo fuck ups is that they naturally draw people around them who will kind of support the the fucking up yeah. to uh, to to propel them forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like I was thinking about the, some of the stuff you were saying about like punk as a political movement, which I also agree on. It's like the political valence of punk in, in especially in America is not as interesting to me as like the aesthetic interesting part of it, which is. uh you know, I find generally interesting in the weird ways that it mutates, but also the thing that I love throughout all these books is the kind of like do it yourself mentality mm-hmm. of punk, which in its own way feels like the kind of positive incarnation of the uh, usually very negative American entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. You know, where like the, the usual like poisonous entrepreneurialism is that, you know, you must destroy the world to obtain personal success in a material way. Whereas this is like the positive version of like, I am provided with almost endless opportunities to just make something in the world. And so, you know, in the more tragic circumstances, I might destroy myself to do it, but I can also do these things. And I, I, I can, if I grind, like make something like art exists that didn't exist before. Um, so that's one of the things that fascinates me about these groups. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, that aspect of punk, I think, is, like, like kind of as close to universally positive as you can be. Like, yeah, there are definitely some people who uh, did it themselves and uh, created something that did not make anyone happier or the world better. <laughs> yes. Or did anyone enjoyed or whatever. But, like, <laughs> I think, yeah, it's generally, like, a very good employment of, yeah, the American entrepreneurial spirit or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, like, that's sort of the longest lasting legacy of punk. I mean, there's obviously, like, the fashion influences, which, like, go in and out every year. But, uh, yeah, no, the idea that you can just do something if you have, like, the basic necessary equipment or even if you don't is, like, absolutely positive for any art. Then that's the thing that I love about all these bands, although it's not particularly applicable to the replacements. No, it's not. Yeah, no, not at all. It's, like, cause someone else to do it for you and then fuck it up. And then, like, do that again for, like, a decade and then, like, die. That's that's punk in its own way, I guess. <laughs> it's punk in the, and it's chaotic. It's, it's, it's yeah, dying is pretty punk. It's I mean, it's I don't really want to call it like I don't know punk, but like as far as like showing that you don't give a fuck and that you're legitimately very fucked up, it, it demonstrates that more than uh, uh, who's the guy from Sex Pistols who didn't die? 
<laughs> John Lydon. Like, yeah. He's like a Tory now. Yeah. John Lydon. It's like, yeah, John Lydon is just like, he's an influencer. Yes. And he yes. always has been that. And these guys, like, they wanted to be that, but were like too fucked up to do it. Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> They and like, didn't have quite the same infrastructure either. Like, yeah, I just like couldn't get. It's like weird how big the UK punk shit got so fast because they had all of these press outlets that were willing to like immediately cover it and like make it a thing. Yeah, yeah, and like, I mean, like think about what Paul Westerberg is doing now, which is like sometimes he's like a session musician in Minneapolis, and <laughs> he lives in Edina, which is like a pretty nice area. So like mm-hmm. he has some money for sure, but it's like mostly just totally left alone like doesn't mm-hmm. give a shit like the only time only like somewhat recent interviews i see of him are with like local papers there like for <laughs> someone who is incredibly influential and that is like john lydon goes on fucking news shows and is like boris is punk <laughs> like, <laughs> like he just like the idea of himself not being famous is so horrifying to him which i think is true for like a lot of these guys but paul westerberg clearly is doesn't want that yeah. yeah. And yep. Bar like uh yeah, uh Stinson if he was alive, like no, yeah. I, I just don't think there's that same desire, that same like I, fear of not being famous anymore. I do, I do think it's to uh, the great credit of most of the people uh in featured in this book that they like very much eschew that other than Henry Rollins, who yeah. is the interesting celeb uh, of this of this era, yeah. Uh, but even him seems like somebody who really only does something if you ask him to. But if you ask him to, he will do it. Yeah. Uh, at this point, well, that, I mean, that's not even to say that he's like a shitty artist or that like none of the things he did before have value. But it's just like, no, I mean, go figure. A lot of people who are very famous wanted to be famous. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that did like. Yeah, no, that doesn't invalidate everything they've ever done, but it's a clear difference between Rollins and Westerberg. Yes. Westerberg did not go on the uh, YouTube show Hot Ones, for example. Yeah. And Henry Rollins did. Westerberg would not be in Sons of Anarchy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, like, yeah, there's no way. (laughs) You know, back to the the story of the mats, um, the they were talking about the songwriting process. So yeah, they, they did stink, uh, replacement stink, which was their, uh, you know, dabbling in the hardcore scene. And then they pretty much immediately got out of that scene. Uh, Westerberg starts writing things that are a little bit more tuneful, a little bit more melodic. Uh, and he says, uh, the, the writing, uh, Westerberg had to write for a tough, diverse audience, his own band. And he said, if it doesn't rock enough, Bob will scoff at it. And if it isn't catchy enough, Chris won't like it. And if it isn't modern enough, Tommy won't like it. Uh, and so within that framework, he uh, creates Hootenanny. They write Hootenanny, which is not a hardcore record. Uh, it was definitely goofy. But as Azarad writes, it wasn't just power trash anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I which, do love the power trash. But uh, Chris, here's I know wolf- you love power trash. Yes, I know. It's like your favorite kind I'm of a, music. I'm a very I'm a very simple man. I like power trash. You like your uh, you any, like any, you you'll still keep listening to that garbage. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but I was re-listening to Who Nanny, and this is the one that stuck out to me. It's called Willpower. It has almost like a new wavy, like experimental feel. Uh, it takes a second to develop, so I'll just play it under this. Yeah.
it's hard to uh, read this stuff and not feel like Bob Stinson just comes off at, out as like an absolute caveman of a person. Yeah, for sure. Like, sure, like a guitar savant in some ways, but uh, like unable uh, to process. He's, a, you know, he's like a uh, he's like a John Belushi character. Yeah. Like this one sounds more like a like a kind of a UK new wave number mm-hmm. almost. It's like very out of place for most of the other stuff in this whole scene, but I found it interesting. It's almost uh, I know I like it's almost like a goth song, like a Brit- like a yeah, British eighties goth yeah. song. Sort of like Sisters of Mercy esque. Yeah, with the or like a, and everything. Like a deep like a deep cut Bauhaus or like an album cut Bauhaus song or something like that. Yeah. Which is I mean the range, because the rest of this is like, you know, it verges uh, verges on like country rave ups and stuff like that. Yeah. This is the one that that stood out for me. Will Power. Oh, this also off. sounds proto grunge too. Like this sounds yeah, way yeah, more yeah, like those early nineties in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of this stuff, it, I mean, I feel like the half of the point of this book was to kind of prove that grunge didn't just come from nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, here, I'll just go on to the next song, which I also very much like, uh, Take Me to the Hospital, just to show the diversity of this album. Well, this sounds like a hoot nanny. Yeah, this does sound like a hoot nanny. Yeah, it's like almost like uh, you know, like an outlaw country song or something. This is "Take Me to the Down to the Hospital" off Hoot Nanny. All right. That also sounds more like the. I feel like my my dad was prime age for um, college rock in the like mid '80s, and that that yeah. kind of sounds like that shit. Honestly, I'll never forget the first time my dad played music that he listened to in college, and I, my brain was just trying to like wrap my wrap it, it, it around it, just like what the fuck. What was your dad's favorite be college band? I mean, I feel like he listened to like Ario Speedwagon. Ario Speedwagon. Well, Ario Speedwagon is. They were a college they were early, band. yeah. They, they, they were a college band when my of Champagne Urbana when my dad went to college there. <laughs> <laughs> they had a, lo- a long uh, They were like the rain bar then. band at University of Illinois. Yeah, I, th- I think I think they I think they listened to REM, but yeah, all that all that kind of shit. It's I don't know, it's good. Yeah. And also probably I don't know, that's the first time I think I understood what college r- rock was, but I, I feel like it, it's very telling that one of the main distinctions that like bifurcates rock music into like an, a, a two distinct genres is the application of college, and um, perhaps very telling for one of the reasons that college uh, or that rock and roll like kind of tapers out pretty soon after this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's um, like what college did to the rest of culture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, 
Okay, so yeah, they critics love Hootenanny. It gets college radio airplay. Um, Azarad says, uh, Paul Westerberg uh, must have been burned to be taken seriously. But when you've grown up with low expectations and then the world tells you you're great, how do you cope with it? There we go. Uh, and the answer is more alcohol. They keep drinking. Um, it was, uh, quote, key to the replacement's erratic performance style. And, quote, getting drunk for a show was a good way to ensure they'd never be successful enough to be co-opted. Again, yeah. I mean, you know I, know, I know the last time we had you on, Felix, was to talk about SoundCloud rap. And I do feel like in a weird way, there's parallels there of like setting a limitation for yourself by the light, like the sort of substance lifestyle you lead. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm thinking of Lil Peep in particular. Yeah. yeah. R.I.P. And the, the, with the SoundCloud stuff, there's again when I was talking about like the expectations of of performing of like uh, they kind of like seem like they expected themselves to behave like this. That also seems like a weird echo with the SoundCloud guys of of being like at this point there's almost like a weird expectation that you'll probably be dead by the time you're like 23. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't know how many of the the gig stories that you have going on, but they're all just like so many like story after story of, yeah. of them like. Uh, like then we had the chance to play for this many people, so we compensated by getting even drunker than ever before. And you know, we toured with REM, and we were like, "Wow, this is a big audience uh, of new people who might be able to uh, be fans of our music. We better play the most alienating bad sets we possibly can." Yeah, the I mean, the other I I listed a couple of these that they played in Nashville. They were surrounded by country music executives, uh, so they played extremely uh, abrasive punk rock until they drove everyone out but the punks, and once they drove everyone out, then they switched back to country music. Uh, Chris Mars had an alter ego named Pappy the Clown <laughs> that came out <laughs> after too many drinks. And then the bit, the legendary story is that a show at the University just, of San Diego. I just yes. want to be clear about Pappy the Clown because we were talking about uh, Clown Night in Alabama from yes. of Burma. Yeah. That he would literally put on white face and dress up in a full clown costume and come out and drum as a clown yeah. for that. So that there's, just, Icon. Uh, you know, just tracking the, the undercurrent of clownishness that goes through the, these acts. Yeah. I think that's important. Uh, yeah. The, the legendary shows, they play the university of San Diego. Uh, Bob gets so drunk that he goes, he arrives in his underwear. He tears down a 60 foot curtain. <laughs> and as he's walking onto the stage, uh, anything that he walked by a table, a chair, a telephone, he would gather up into the curtain. He gets up on stage, <laughs> drops the curtain and the underwear and plays the whole show naked, except for his guitar. And this uh, anecdote blew my mind. At a certain point, someone throws a shoe at him. He caught the shoe, spun the guitar around, pissed in the shoe, threw the shoe back, spun the guitar back around, and finished his guitar solo that he was playing at, at the time. So I understand why it is a legendary show. Because that uh, seems nuts. I mean... That would be hard to forget if you saw that live. If only they had a uh, you know a bunch of cell phones that were equipped with to you know record high quality video. <laughs> Could have been a, a real. I mean, I was viral looking moment. for good replacements footage on YouTube before this, and there really isn't that much. And maybe it's for the uh, for the best that that these things are. The one that I was specifically looking for, and as Felix, as you logged on, we were talking about uh, that they played a kind of legendary gig on SNL, probably around this time, like 1986, a little later, where they. Uh, you know, of uh, uh, incurred the le incurred the legendary band for life from uh, Lorne Michaels, uh, which is you know as I was commenting, pretty much in impossible to imagine an artist appearing 
now on SNL and and playing a show that rowdy on SNL that they could incur something like that. They would have but, to like deny the Holocaust, <laughs> <laughs> like to do it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or say a a a, a slur of of some description, maybe. Yes. Well, like I mean, Lauren Michaels is. 100% without exaggeration on the side of Harvey Weinstein. If you remember that thing where he like personally intervened to like take fucking Harvey Weinstein jokes out of the, oh, like man. out of Saturday Night Live. So it's like, well, I mean, on one side you have the replacements and on one you have Lauren Michaels and Harvey mm-hmm. Weinstein. Yes. Whose side are you on? Yeah. That's it. No, that's like pretty easy choice to make. Yeah. I don't even really think like. I mean, like, probably in some abstract sense in the wrong of, like, destroying the stage and, like, not playing their instruments, but, like, (laughs) in the cosmic right, yeah, I know who's right. Yes. Yeah. I also feel like, I mean, I don't know what kind of, uh, I don't know what the budget cheat looks like for SNL, but, like, I would imagine they would be able to withstand a a little bit of property damage, you know? Like, yeah. How much did a stage cost in like it's all made of <laughs> yeah. cardboard. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. It's That's fine. back when we still had cardboard factories like in America too. Yeah. You could just like import <laughs> all the cardboard go, like, from Indonesia. You could just go to Tribeca and there was probably a cardboard factory there. <laughs> Not like three now blocks. where you have to yeah. order it from Bangladesh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! It it also puts the uh you know I don't want to hate on my girl Phoebe Bridgers because I really I do like her and her music, but like everyone freaked out when she like did the guitar smash, which was I didn't realize it at the time because I was watching it on like a you know grainy Twitter video, but it was a a prop monitor that was set up to like spark. So even that idea now of like you you smash your guitar, you destroy property is like already been turned into like a bit. And yeah. people got mad anyway, but it's so, I don't know. Yeah, it's so that was stupid. so lame in every direction. Yeah. yeah, that was like, I mean, like, I don't like dislike her music or anything. Like, okay, I will admit to one mean activity where uh, <laughs> whenever she does, like, you know, one of her joke tweets or just like yelling at David Crosby, I look at the verified men who are like, yes, <laughs> go. And uh, just say, there was like four or five group chats that I send those Abbeys to because I think they're funny. Like mm-hmm. a, a bunch of music fans think those guys are hilarious. We're talking like guys like their profile pictures them with like their hands on their hips and like a <laughs> Nintendo belt and a newsboy. <laughs> like guys, guys I haven't seen since 2007 and it always kills it always kills me. But you know, I certainly can't make fun of anyone for having annoying or uh funny fans. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I certainly can't hold that against her. Sure. But yeah, I mean, like she was just never gonna break that monitor. She's f- fucking five foot nothing and like seventy eight <laughs> pounds. Like she just just not have the upper body strength or like drive through in the quadriceps to pull that off. <laughs> you know, and it was, I was yeah, a completely s- manufactured moment. But yeah, okay. So you know how Brooklyn Dad Defiant, the guy who oh was, like, yes yes yes, this was scary. I'm like I've 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 been locked in my bedroom for five days since i've seen this like what about like we need to not destroy monitors he was probably paid for that because we know now yeah, yeah. that he's paid by the dnc and it's like some music labels like hey we need to like this sucked we need someone to act like it was yeah scary. wow you're you're bringing a, me to a real uh higher like third eye understanding of this because yes my my 
original take was like, ah, oh, that sucks that it is such obviously like a controlled moment on it. But now I'm thinking of like, what if it was like she was like, I really want to destroy my guitar, and then she did it in rehearsal, and the camera guy was like whispering to the director, hey, that looks really lame. Is there any way we can get like a prop monitor in here so she doesn't look foolish doing it? Yeah, that was between dress rehearsal and the show. And then, you know, the show airs. It's like two in the morning Eastern time. And like there hasn't been a big hubbub. And so, you know, whatever fucking, yeah. uh, I don't know what her label is, but wh- whoever yeah, yeah. SNL is associated with is like. Polygram, Lorne Michaels uh, get, get, have a 2.30 a.m. huddle. And they're like, we need to get Rob, shooters. Robbie, Robbie Mook. We need to get Mook on the phone to get generate their shooters some buzz going. about this. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, I, so, like, I got obsessed with uh, those tweets that are like, you know, your childhood was lit if you had one of these, and it's like literally just a juice box that like, still exists today. <laughs> the, it has like pla- seventy-five million retweets. The yeah, plastic like, chair I, was very funny to Felix. Yeah, I figured out that those are all like they're all organized, like varying degrees yeah. of complexity. But it's like it's all these are all like stolen tweets and shit, and like a lot of those retweets are just like juiced or bots or whatever, and yeah. they're all just trying to like it, it's sort of like an ad network, and then like. You know, when a brand tweets something that gets like a million retweets, it's like you got to figure some of it, a lot of that's paid for. Yeah. And so I just, I feel like most things I see are like made by guys in Soho or <laughs> yeah. like, or just like teenagers in Moldova, like those cheer yeah. tweets. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, no, I've come to not trust anything. And I do not think the people who are like, that was, uh, she should be ashamed of herself. Like that was paid for. Like, I think David Crosby legitimately thought it was lame, but I feel like everyone else, that this is like a paid op. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to join the, uh, the, 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 the Bridgers SNL Truther uh, organization. There's, there's something more going on there. Well, will, it just reminds me, like, uh, I think this happened a few months ago that uh, all of a sudden the like, biggest TikTokers in, on the platform all of a sudden randomly started dancing to like a mid mid 90s like Michael Jackson song and the, it was the captions are always like hashtag Michael Jackson and then they added whoever whatever the record label was and it was clear that they were just like paying to seed those songs to try to turn them into TikTok songs so yeah nothing nothing would eventually surprise but it's just so Adding random the record la- if you're a teenager imagine like how imagine any case in which you were a teenager and you were like enjoying a song you were like damn thank you to island records for this musical moment exactly that i'm now experiencing and like just the lowest effort shit of just them like kind of like lip syncing into a mirror oh man ah yes everything everything is is paid for yeah it's, it's good to know it's good to remember so what's next in the replacement story? Let it be. Let it be is next. Let it be, of that's, course. That's 1984. Um, as Azarad writes, the dividing line between the indie and major worlds was between punk-derived music and the blues-rooted uh, uh, fare of the bloated, indulgent, aged superstars who had attained seemingly eternal life on classic rock radio. The p- replacements were a bridge between the two. So, yeah, that, they, uh, they did that. They, they didn't have the, to snap so hard with Let It Be. <laughs> I think one of the most hilarious jokes on this album is that they do a really great cover of Kiss's Black Diamond. Mm. Uh, but instead of playing that, we'll just start with I Will Dare. Felix, when you when you first like started uh, you know, considering the replacements, was this the album that, that you got into? Or no, was it... I think it was, it was Tim, a, actually. Tim? 
Yeah. I think. I mean, there are a million things that you can say about this, but I feel like the most elevated take uh, that I can possibly give is, damn, this is just good rock music. Yeah, it's just, just pleasant. I do love when the bridge hits in the song. that rawness to his voice but it is just interesting how like little resemblance this has to the uh the other like supposedly like indie punk acts that we have uh, seen so far on this i mean it, it, there's such a um i don't know just a genuine and a genuine they're all very genuine they're all very hard in school they're, sh- they're shredding their hearts uh to play their hard fast hardcore music but it, it's it's very sweet you know yeah yeah this is like yeah not ingenuine in any way but very refined in this yeah. way that a lot a lot of the genre is not. Yeah, I think it's noted in the book that it's it has arrangements. <laughs> Just like, yeah. You know, it's it's arranged, it has it has dynamic changes, it, it the instrumentation is kind of sophisticated. And also yeah, just like the guitar playing is so good. Sinson is so great. a mandolin in this song? He still has that, like, why, that, that whiny belt on this that, that still feels both, you know, permanently adolescent, but also, you know, with, with that, that undertones of maturity. Yeah. Throughout all of it. Should we listen to an- another tune? Oh, is, you it, is it androgynous? I want to hear androgynous. Yeah, I know you love androgynous. Yeah, let's do androgynous. Here comes Dick. He's wearing a piano? A, a piano? Jane, you know she's sporting a chain. Same hair evolution. Same build evolution. Tomorrow who's gonna fuss? And they love each other so androgynous. Closer than you know, love each other so androgynous. Don't get him wrong. This sounds like a um, a fucked up version of like a Randy Newman song in a Pixar movie. Uh, this is like the best um, Lou Reed song that Lou, ne- Lou Reed never wrote. <laughs> yeah, this is Lou Reed if he weren't quite such a fucking freak. Yeah. Androgynous, closer than you know, love each other so. It also has a, that like uh, almost like honky tonky feel to it. I mean that that is one of the things that's so interesting about them is that they 
for being theoretically a punk band from Minnesota that they tra- channel this real like Nashville country feeling yeah. throughout all of their stuff. I'm not really sure where that comes from because whenever they're listening, there were there are like influences and stuff. It's mostly just like listening to uh, either UK punk bands or like the big AM radio bands, rock bands of the 70s. So I'm not mm-hmm. not super sure where that Amer- Americana influence comes from, but it's there. I mean, I do think, uh, what you call it, Jesperson was not only a manager and a label guy, but he was kind of a musical mentor for them. I think he was playing them some stuff. Oh, yeah. They, they talk about them. how Jesperson had all the good records. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've always got to, you got to have one guy like that that yeah. really helps. Yeah. I just love, that's the chillest song about just being like, yeah, g- gender is, it's whatever, man. Yeah. yeah very ahead of its time. Incredibly very ahead, of, ahead its time. of its time. And, and you know, not super flaunting about it, just very low-key and very, uh, very unassuming. I love it. Uh, she, she's happy with the way she looks. She's happy with her gender. I just what a, <laughs> yeah. what a couplet. I love it. Uh, anything else off of Let It Be? Because I actually think it's the last album before they release to a major. We can definitely do a, a, a Tim a Tim tune or two. Uh, I'd like to move on to Tim because there are two that I'd like to play off Tim. Okay. Well, before we get to Tim Tim in the timeline, you know the obviously huge critical success let it be uh the success and the attention hits the boys hard specifically bob who responds to uh all all of this with uh by drowning himself in drugs and alcohol uh they also as seems to happen at this point in the chapters of every book the money is not matching the attention that is being given uh twin tone had five employees and uh it does seem to be the the main problem with indie music at this time is like if you only have so many guys who can work on something records aren't going to get into stores attention is not going to be paid to the level it's supposed to and they're you know making if they have questions about the accounting that's happening and indeed they did not see the correct amount of money they were supposed to be getting for royalties until 1989 um so that that sucks yeah felix how glad are you that you that we don't have to deal with a podcast label yeah, that would be a fucking nightmare. Well, we almost I, we almost did. Really? Is this some deep lore that I'm not privy to? Well, like it's pre-Chapo, but uh yeah, in oh, the early ca- 2016 like- stand-up New York. And this is like nothing against them. Uh it's just like this would have been a weird setup for us for what this thing is and how how like uh how it's supported. But it was gonna be me, Will, and Mullen. <laughs> uh, yeah no it just sort of fell through but it was like very early on and uh i mean yeah we would have had a label then i mean that's one of the interesting things about podcasting too is that it seems like there have been so many different attempts to try to build some kind of like label or record system out of podcasting but for various reasons it is like inherently resistant to that kind of formulation so there are these networks that kind of pop up yeah. and they like build and subside and some of them are more permanent than, than others, but like it, it's just not the same thing in such a particular way. The serial nature of it, the incredibly low cost to entry, all, all of those things. Um, but it, it does seem like I, I part of the uh, schadenfreude of being attached to a very successful independent media project is, is watching people try and fail over and over again to like rebuild label systems around 
uh, podcasts and, mm-hmm. and it just like totally not working. The only uh, people I can really think of who have been successful with that, uh, two very similar podcast networks, are Crooked Media and Legion of Scan- like uh, Gas Digital. <laughs> yes. But no, those are the only two ones. Because uh, maybe both, maybe they, they also both, Earwolf, the uh, you know, like all those LA comedy shows. I I guess, but I mean, with Earwolf, it's just like all those guys seem to just know each know other. Each other, yeah. It's yeah. more like a friendship network or something. Yeah, but <laughs> friendship network. But it like, is. It's like all those guys are just in each other's rolodexes. That's but like Crooked and Le- and uh, Gas Digital, it's both like, oh, this is like a kind of podcast you like. Yes, and mm-hmm. it like it generally makes sense. And there's like audience crossover but it's not like everyone listens to there's something for everyone and things yeah. that don't always necessarily overlap but could because they're part of this network but yeah no those are and i think it's interesting just like how uh you know me uh will and mullen like uh we almost did we did it as uh one group and it split off into two different podcasts it's interesting um louis j gomez and John Favreau, they were going to start a podcast, but then it just became Gas Digital and Crooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and we all, you know, are looking at all the time for those mm. those buried demo tapes of the, yeah. the Puerto Rican rattlesnake, and of course, uh, yeah. and, and Luis Chigomas. <laughs> yeah. So you know, speaking of uh, label struggles, there was one night they were convinced the band was convinced that Twin Tone wasn't reporting. European royalties so they busted into the recording studio where they thought their masters were kept they stole what they thought were their masters and they threw them into the Mississippi River which is honestly uh, pr- it's it's pretty pretty epic and pretty based um, but they weren't the real masters they were like fake masters so <laughs> not effective <laughs> but just this that's I mean talk about self-sabotage the destruction yes. the the appetite for destruction required to be like you know what fuck this i'm throwing our masters <laughs> in the, the river, river. <laughs> no if, uh, you know if we can't get those european royalties nobody will ever hear these songs again yeah it's a yeah very I do deeply admire that because it's like yeah it's yeah no like it, it, if I'm not getting my piece, fuck you. And like, yeah. what would their European royalties have even been? Like, <laughs> yes. Probably like our Spotify payouts. <laughs> like $300 over five years. Did yeah, they exactly. ever tour? I don't, I don't know if I clocked this in the book. Did they ever tour Europe? I don't think that they made it to Europe. They didn't, they didn't, uh, you know, they, I mean, given their, their ramshackleness, they barely made it to the East coast. Yeah. I was honestly, yeah. it's honestly talking about this band. It's shocking that one of their most, most notorious gigs is in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Because Southern California feels like it would repel these Minnesotan type guys, uh, like you know the the polar opposites of a, a magnet. It does seem like every time they go somewhere, like that, it was recounted that they went to like CBGBs, and I think Bob immediately got eighty six. Like it was just <laughs> and, like with, walked in and immediately was like, "You cannot. I don't know what your here. deal is, but it's not this place's deal." Yeah. So I guess, I guess that makes sense. They they probably would have died in, in Europe if they had gone to Europe. I'm not sure if they would even have been able to get on an airplane. So, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. It's amazing they got any, like, that they were able to, like, get on an airplane together <laughs> yeah. at any point. Yeah. Like, or, like, get, uh, get up on time to, like, get mm-hmm. somewhere on time. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, if I'm, I'm just trying to feel like if I was their manager, I would tell every, I would tell them everything is, like, Probably like two weeks earlier than it actually is. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, they they are uh, you know have uh, success critically. They're trying to find success financially. 
Uh, they play a show for some industry industry types at CBGB's. And uh, according to Azra, they played nothing but shambling covers. And then Paul grabbed the mic and said, do we get a record contract now? And guess what? <laughs> they did. Uh, Warner Brothers was, I think, the only major label to express any kind of interest. And they signed to them uh, in 1985. I think uh, Tim came out on Sire Records. And they also fired Bob Stinson in 1986. Um, he was, you know, really struggling with drinking. There was a really heartbreaking story where it, it, it sounds like he went to rehab and had been uh, off booze for like three weeks, went to a show, and uh, uh, I think it was, Paul, was it Paul? Yeah, Paul, Paul came up to him with a bottle of champagne and said, either take a drink, motherfucker, or get off my stage. Uh, and a couple weeks later, they fired him. They also fired Pete Jesperson, uh, who was, I think, devastated because it sounds like he literally invested his entire life into this band. Yeah. That's the, uh, that, that's the Fargo ishness of it, of, of being like, I mean, he, he said, they say that he, he gets fired cause he was also like too hard partying to do his job. Right. But this guy who like is just a, a like kind of good, hardworking Minnesota music guy who finds these people who he is certain are the real deal. And to a certain extent they are. And then does everything in his power to make them into the real deal. And then as soon as they get the record contract, even though he is like partying just as lo- as hard as they are along right. with them, they're like, you have to get out of here. It's very, it's very sad. It's very, ah, oh, geez, ah, oh, shucks, guys. I, I can't believe after all the good times we had, no, he can't be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, they, I mean, the, the band, A, never was the same B never really broke through uh, to the big leagues, even with a major label deal. Um, and they they put out a couple more albums. Meanwhile, uh, Bob Simpson uh, died of symptom or you know uh, the effects of alcoholism in 1985. He was I think 35 years old, which is just awful. Um, but yeah, should we should we listen to some Tim to to close it out from their yeah. their last la- last pre pre Bob exit. Album. Yeah. Um, yes. Here's some tip. Uh, let's start with swimming party. It is, it's just a sensitive and open and maybe the most, yeah, the most like an American band has ever sounded like the Smiths. Yeah. It's not to say to uh, say that like the Smiths is something that is like, a, you know, that everything should be striving for. But it is funny that this, I always think of the Smiths as being like so eternally English, which they are. Uh but their particular brand of like sad melancholy seems so much to them. And it is very interesting to hear, uh, you know, American guys from Minnesota 
affecting that very uh, that very same style. If being afraid is a crime, we hang side by side at the swinging party down the line. At the swinging party down the line. That's that. And I also wanted to play the next one, which is maybe like I guess one of their biggest songs. It's hard to like uh, quantify these. Uh, but this one I just thought was funny because as I was preparing, you know, over the last week I've been listening to their songs and like thinking about them and reading, reading on them. Um, but on Friday, I watched the new mutants, the much maligned, uh, young X-Men movie that came out like sometime during quarantine, like unceremoniously dumped, like a movie that is supposed by all accounts, uh, you know, was supposed to be just like something that the studios could not wait to slough off. And I was delighted halfway through with the one pop song that they played in that entire movie is Bastards of Young by The Replacements, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I was like, I could not figure out why that mo- that song made it into that movie because, it, you know, it's supposed to be like taken by the studio and chopped up. It's like, was the studio like, we need to give this movie some cred. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Put a replacement song in it. Yeah. But anyway, this is And this is the one that they got banned from SNL for playing. Great. Fucking legendary, mate. Yeah, so, I mean, they, they have one more album after this, The Police, Police to Meet Me, which is also very well regarded, and that has Al- Alex Chilton on it. Uh, maybe we can play that at towards the end to go out. But, you know, it is like, in, in the, the story that Azarad's trying to tell, the band just kind of fades away after this. Like, they, they have the potential, they make it, but but kind of crushed under their own will to sabotage themselves at, mm-hmm. every, at every turn. Um, they just can't keep it up, and... Uh, can't persist and what goes on with Bob Stinson I mean he, he does seem again like a very John Belushi figure in this whole thing mm-hmm. incredibly talented person who who thinks or feels for whatever reason that he cannot exist besides being like an uncontrollable party monster yeah yeah I don't know it's just it's fucking sad <laughs> it's sad and also the only way this one of the many only ways the story could end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like these guys, I think weirdly enough, they're going to have a life forever in a way. I feel like generations yeah. from now, people will keep discovering them and keep thinking they're cool because the music is sort of timeless. Yeah. Like it's at some point such a refined process uh, and at other times so raw, often in the same song uh, and such a variety that I think, I can see 40 years from now, like people who are 20 finding them and loving it on whatever like neural implant replaces TikTok. <laughs> but they, they themselves will never be cultural icons. Mm-hmm. And yeah. not, that's not what they wanted to be. But most of them will not even have like a normal contented life. Some of them ended up, yeah, being line cooks and then just like dying of alcoholism. Well, yeah. that's so that's the weird bifurcation of this. So Bob Simpson, yeah, line cook, died of alcoholism at age 35. 
Tommy Stinson, his younger brother, went on to be the bassist for fucking Guns N' Roses. Which I had totally forgotten about. Yes. Uh, Which I do have to shout out because it it is a callback to our very first episode on Guns N' Roses bassist. Duff McKagan. F- founding founding topic. Founding Duff topic of, of this. Uh, that Tommy Simpson, Stinson, child bassist wonder, Tommy Stinson ended up replacing Duff McKagan on bass for Guns N' Roses for like 20, almost 20 years, something like 1998 to, well, like 15 years, 1998 to 2012. You know, I, I mean, I haven't looked totally into his career doing that, but you know, to the pinnacles of rock star success, like one of the like top, I don't know, fifty rock star positions in the world. Yeah. Wait a second. Remember when uh, Guns N' Roses played at the VMAs and it was very messy? I think it was in like two thousand, maybe one or two. That's was probably he, Tommy Stinson playing there. Stage because I know they had Buckethead at that point as well. Oh God! So was Guns N' Roses at that point? Tommy Stinson, Buckethead, uh, Axel, Axel, and oh uh, yeah, don't. don't don't take our words for it. it must one of the have, biggest, it, one of the messiest uh, lineups of all time is Guns yeah, N' Roses, yeah. I would say. That so that's like the two weird trajectories of like maybe <laughs> if they had all been able, I mean, even if that even that feels weird to say. If they were all Tommies, if they were all like ch- children being dragged along on this like uh, like booze cruise through indie rockdom, they I would mean they up, they kind of were. Yeah, they all were. I mean, they all were. It's it's just funny that that Bob. It's funny and tragic that Bob Simpson ends up dead by the early '90s, and and Tommy ends up in Guns N' Roses. Yeah, I don't. I, it's. I think that's just clear that it's not not predictable what mm-hmm. you know the the circumstances versus how you react to them is uh, certainly not uh, standardized. Yeah, but in you, any way, you, you are. I think you are right, Felix. That the the kind of timelessness of them and the very like pan American rockness of them, like you can. Imagine these songs being slotted in as easily in like a 1950s prom like scene. Yeah. Uh, as, you know, sometime in the future where people are maybe listening into and playing uh, this kind of rock music again. Yeah. But like, yeah, no, they themselves, like, I, it's hard to imagine a world where they're like really that famous of people. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even after doing this, I, I, and looking up a bunch of stuff about them, I do not have clear pictures of any of their faces in my head. No, yeah. Well, yeah, they all just like kind of look like guys. Yeah, they're just guys. They're just guys. <laughs> they're just guys who made some really great rock music in yep. Minnesota in the 80s. Yep. I don't think you have anything more, Molly? I got nothing more. That's well, then it. let's move confidently into the end part of this episode. Uh, Felix, thank you very much for joining us. My Always pleasure. great to talk music with you. Um, my pleasure. This was great. Uh, obviously, we have uh, one big project that we share that doesn't really need plugging, but anything that you would like to plug on this? Uh, time for My Stories with me and Matt on Stitcher Premium. And also, uh, Season 2 of Blowback will be launching soon. Oh, hell yeah. Blowback Rocks. So, That's a great uh, podcast. Yeah. Everybody should listen to that as well. We So, yeah, no. The only podcast about history and the only podcast ever about TV. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. can get them both. Just like this is the only <laughs> podcast about music. Yeah. And yeah, we normally true. do the only podcast about politics. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are you four have podcasts. An enti- you have an entire world universe of experience that can be contained within the four shows contained with the show. Well, those are the only four things. Yeah. Uh, music, TV, history, and politics. Yeah. The rest is just food. Yeah. And that you can't taste food on a podcast. Yeah, so. no. Like Bon Appetit doesn't exist anymore or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, <laughs> they like got rid of it. Yeah. Uh, R.I.P. Food Media. 
It's just the guy who's making the food based on TV and movies. So there you go. Uh, I'm trying to remember if I have any uh, extraordinary notes to add to this. I don't think I do. I I had that one update about my parents taking the same plane deal as Mission to Burma from the other podcast, but no. Um, I actually had a couple of orders of business that I wanted to get into um, while while I've got the the horn <laughs> while I've got the mic. Um, one is that I received we received a an email from someone who wanted to gently correct us about the cause of the accident for D Boone back in the Minutemen episode. We talked at the end about how D Boone uh, tragically and unfortunately died in a car accident that I had originally said and was originally in the book as uh, his girlfriend falling asleep at the wheel. It was later discovered uh, pretty much conclusively based on some, um, I guess, forensic analysis, more or less, that an axle actually broke at, in the car and uh, that's what caused the crash. And I thought that that was important enough to include as a correction. Uh, I know we are not the New York Times, but we are uh, a certain kind of times. <laughs> we we are we are we are times of a certain description, and uh, especially something that is so unbelievably devastating. Uh, the cause of which I think is important to adjust. Therefore, uh, that that is that. The second order of business is that I had promised to a listener of Andy introducing who I know on Twitter is at Sigma Kush waffle, uh, that I would shout out their dad. And, uh, I said that I would do this. And then I've just been looking at my DMS trying to figure out what their dad's name is and I can't find the DM. So, uh, consider this a shout out at Sigma Kush waffles, dad. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, and this is a, a signal, of course, to not just tell your friends, uh, but to tell your family members to listen to this podcast. Hopefully they find something that they will enjoy. Okay, that's it for me. Uh, thank you for listening. You can find us, as always, on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash and uh, dash intro dash pod so or i feel find like us- usually you tee up the like twitter or something first i got caught off uh, you're guard. right you're right you're right uh well, you can find us on twitter at and intro pod you can send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com i think that's it for this episode this is uh the replacements we will return next week with sonic youth taking it to new york the city of irony the greatest city in the world baby in new york yeah. mets jets sonic youth baby uh, that's it. We'll talk to you next week on an intro. Do see.